The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. How do we grow Aotearoa without poisoning our land even more, increasing the climate emissions that are warming our planet, and doing it in a way that people enjoy not just what they're doing, but where they're doing it, and making sure that they're making lots of money doing it. And we're not just extending an extractive, low-wage, low-growth economy. Because for the last couple of decades, that's what this economy has been. It's been a low-wage, high-population growth, low-infrastructure, low-productivity, low-wage economy. And the only ways we've found growth are A, throwing more people into it, often temporary workers, but secondly, doubling down on putting yet more nitrates through our soil into the water, extracting as much as we can from our sites and our scenery by pumping as many tourists in there as we can, filling them up with coffee made by baristas at the minimum wage or not much more, making sure that those people who need somewhere to stay actually not making sure that those people who are doing that work don't have somewhere to stay, to the point where in Queenstown recently there have been people who quit days into the job simply because they've got nowhere to live and the employers are now looking to start building their own accommodation for their own workers. We've got a problem in this country, unless we find ways to grow that are low touch, that use infrastructure we have all over the country, particularly in regions, we're not going to grow much. We also need to do it in a place where people want to do it. That might mean in the regions with their whānau, in the piece of land that they grew up on, not necessarily in the middle of Auckland or the middle of Wellington. That's what we're going to talk about this week on When the Facts Change how software as a service, a whole new industry of high-paid knowledge workers, could be spread throughout Aotearoa in places like Te Kuiti, Ratahi, Gisborne, Whangarei, producing export earnings, working in teams, but doing it, maybe from a house that isn't brutally expensive, maybe close to where their nanas and cousins are, making sure that they are earning lots of money, but also having time to spend with their families, to bring their kids home from school, to take them to the doctor if they need to, being as flexible as possible. This week on When the Facts Change, we speak to a startup in New Zealand that you may have heard from before, actually, a few years ago, Lauren Pete, who is the founder and CEO of Multitudes.co. Uh, spoke with uh, Simon Pound on Business is Boring. 
But in that last two or three years, it has been an extraordinary period of growth for people working from home. Obviously, COVID has been the major force changing where we live, how we live, and how we work. To the point now, we're quite used to being in front of our laptops, doing the Zoom calls, working on Slack. But is it working? Because for a bunch of people, it's actually quite hard not to have that face-to-face contact. We are social animals, and in many ways, our work can define us. It can be our main social contact. So how do we make sure that working from home is not only productive, but human? Because there is a danger in working from home, and it's called bossware. (laughs) This is where all sorts of software are used by your employer to watch what you're doing and make, making sure you're not slacking off. Now, there are obvious exceptions of people who've wangled themselves two or three jobs in working for home jobs and uh, fiddling between computers and uh, browsers. That is quite a, a dance and quite rare. But a lot of employers have seen an opportunity as well. If people are working from home, maybe they can be monitored. Maybe their performance can be improved. And there have been, of course, many examples of this sort of bossware rebounding in a horrible way as people feel they're not being trusted. It's psychologically harmful. They feel like Big Brother or Big Boss is watching them all the time. Well, Multitudes uh, is working in this software-as-a-service space doing HR software for people managing teams remotely all over the world and is doing it in an ethical and human way, making sure that when people are using these software tools that they're not using them in an oppressive or painful way. They're using them in a human way, not just to uh, be more productive, to reduce their churn rates, but to make it a friendlier place to be where people enjoy starting their work. We talk in this episode with Lauren about the tips to improve working from home, how sometimes you can do things in different ways which are more productive, more fun, and actually improve trust between people who are working remotely. Because this isn't going away. Working from home has not only been a an accident or a, a piece of historic jarring that is not going to go back to where we were. Working from home is the new way, and it creates an opportunity for New Zealand to grow our software-as-a-service industry and produce export dollars and high-paid jobs. We currently have more than $2 billion worth of export receipts every year from software-as-a-service. There's been many cases, led by Zero, of course, but there are many, including Vend and Timely and others, who are employing over 13,000 people in New Zealand working in high-wage jobs, often with total revenues per year of well over $100,000, and doing it from remote places where they can have affordable housing, work uh, flexibly with their families, and be able to grow without necessarily having to whack down another motorway or another hospital or school. Maybe Tekawiti or Ratahi, who have the great infrastructure and resources, could be the new clusters. The new clusters where the coffee is really good, and so is the software. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's this week on When the Facts Change, brought to you on the Spin-Off Podcast Network. 
Well, kia ora, and welcome to Lauren Pete, who is the founder and CEO of Multitudes.co, and is dealing with a fascinating problem and sees an opportunity to help businesses who are doing a lot more working from home help their workers at home be more productive, but not in an icky way. Lauren, it's great to have you here on When the Facts Change on the Spinoffs Podcast Network. Thanks. It's great to be here, Bernard. So, Lauren, could you tell us what's been happening for the last two or three years in the world of working from home and using software to keep an eye on people and how that's gone? Yeah. So I'll start with our bigger vision and and then jump back to how things have been progressing in this broader space. So the bigger goal for us is to make it easier for teams to unlock better team performance and well-being. And we do that with data-driven recommendations from behavioral data that they already have. Um, this, of course, in a, a work-from-home environment, it's harder to get those cues of how is someone feeling, how are they doing. You don't have those moments where you walk past them on the way to the kitchen or in between meetings. And so we don't have those same little in-between moments where we can see, oh, they look a little bit sad, they look a bit stressed. Um, so it is really important to make sure we're staying across how people are doing. We also know that with COVID in particular and with working from home, people are more likely to just work long hours. I've done this, that that classic just, oh, I can do a meeting and another one right after it and that back to back to back and then you get to the end of the day and your brain is fried and and, you, and sometimes you know I get there and I'm not sure what I've even accomplished. Um, and so we're in this environment where it's harder to spot what's happening, but we know that the burnout has has gone up as a result of this. And so there's some very real challenges that we faced in this work from home environment. In terms of the side of how people are using tooling to try to address this and think about it, um, the reality is that there is a whole range of things happening. And some of them are, let's be honest, creepy. There, um, in the space that we work with, so we're working with tech companies, our first focus is on software development teams. And honestly, especially now, it seems like every other week there's a story that comes out about some senior executive who stack ranked people based on really simplistic measures um, one of the worst ones for developers is stack ranking people based on lines of code that you turned out, which is not a good example of how did you contribute to the team? How did you even contribute to this this product that's being built? Yikes. And what other ways are people being ranked or judged uh, from the software, which uh, has sometimes been put onto their machines or that is watching them as they're working in the cloud? Yeah, so certainly the worst is are the ones where people it's on the the their work device and then people aren't being told that it's happening um so i've heard tell of some um and, you know again we are, we stay well away from this ourselves but um i've heard tell of some that'll do things even to the level of tracking people's mouse movements and clicks um this obviously you can imagine the the type of leadership that would be rolling us out this is a very low trust environment um, and it's worth saying that we know that trust and psychological safety are the number one things for team performance. There was some great, now very well-cited research from Google called Project Aristotle. And basically what they found is it doesn't matter, it, it really um, barely matters the performance of the individuals on the team. The number one thing is actually how do those people come together and support each other? And the biggest thing for that is psychological safety. And so, yeah, just all in all, big no-no. Um, and I even, I have once spoken to someone who had had some experience with that. Um, 
in an organization. And it sounds like what executives are getting is actually just all these little screens with mouse movements. And so frankly, it's a really bad way to make decisions. And what is someone going to do with that anyway? An executive, I'm sure they have more important things to do than sit and watch little mouse movements for all of their different team members. The thought that there is some boss out there judging you on the number of mouse movements per 30 seconds just um, blows my mind a little. But um, what other ways are people being monitored? Uh, you've got lines of code, you've got mouse, mouse movements, you've got, uh, you know, taps on keyboards. And, and also now people are, are using a lot of uh, uh, cooperation software like Slack and the likes. So how, how else are these, you know, other cloud services, which many uh, companies use, and in the software development community, you've got the likes of GitHub and the like, how else are they being, you know, watched or, or used to try to, in some cases, improve productivity, but in other cases, you, you do wonder if the, the boss is um, overstepping the mark and perhaps using a very old school way of judge, judging performance along the lines of, are you in the office or not? To, to be honest, this is those are the examples that I know. Um, we Because we stay well clear of that, we don't spend much time thinking about what are the other ways you could do that. Um, we, we spend more time thinking about what are the uplifting ways, how do we put down in the hands of the team, but I will just on your note about it being really old school, to me, it, it really feels like it comes from that old human resources framing of, of how do we work with people and seeing people as widgets to be managed in the factory of whatever it is we're making. Um, and we know, I mean, for knowledge workers, but but for anyone in the modern era, we have employees who are smart. And guess what? They're adults. They can make decisions for themselves. And so the modern way, the way that we see at Multitudes is actually just use use thoughtful data. So a bunch of these examples we've given, all of the examples we've given so far are not thoughtful, but use thoughtful data and then don't give it to some senior leader to micromanage and tell people what to do. Just give better feedback loops to the teams themselves because frankly, they have more context about why the data is tracking how it does. And they're in a better position to take action quickly when they get those feedback loops anyway. Can you give us some examples of that sort of thoughtful data and, uh, and how multitudes um, can work with the likes of these software services like GitHub or Slack to actually improve things and improve trust and psychological safety as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. So um, I'll briefly mention that we've thought a lot about what are the guardrails for what we should and should not measure. And um, there's we've had, there's been this mantra so often, especially for tech companies working with data, that if you have it, you might as well keep it. It could be useful in the future. Maybe we could use it for something. Um, and we deeply disagree with that. We know the risks of holding data that you don't need. Um, one of the examples that I've been citing recently is with the change in abortion laws in the states. There's all sorts of healthcare companies that have information that now could be used to harm people. Um, and and that's information that maybe they didn't even need to capture in the first place. So that's one of the things we think about is should we even be measuring it? Um, and if and and we've got a set of data ethics principles, and one of our principles is reciprocity. And so if we're getting data from somebody, it means we need to be able to give them value back. If there's not a clear pathway for us to give that value back, then we don't we don't collect the data. We sh and, and frankly, we don't think anyone should be collecting that data. So with that framing, you can see the types of things we think about are, what are the data that 
will help a team support the people better or just clear up blockages and and how the work might be flowing. So one example that I'll give is we look at who on the team is getting less feedback than anybody else. And so feedback um, for any role, but particularly when we're thinking about this development context, feedback on code is a great way to reduce the number of bugs and quality issues. So really important that that feedback's coming in. We also know from a really human level that there's bias in who gets feedback. And so people from marginalized groups, not only do they get worse quality feedback, um, there's some great research from Shelley Carell out at Stanford around how feedback to people from marginalized groups is more likely to be vague. So whether it's bad job or good job, if that's all you've got, what are you going to do with that? How do you either improve or how do you maintain what's been good? Why, why is that, do you think? We know that we've got bias in how we work with people from marginalized groups. One of the theories, I think this is one that they hypothesized, is that um, they're particularly when the manager isn't from that same group. So let's say you have um, a white man who's managing a woman or maybe a person of color. Maybe they dance around it. They're they're worried about, you know, how do I say this? And and, you know, there are ways to give there, there are ways to give specific and constructive feedback that is going to be useful for somebody. Um, and, and we know that shying away from the truth is just denying that person the opportunity to improve. But anyway, what example I was going to give then is the second thing we know is that people from marginalized groups just get less feedback, period. So they almost get forgotten when it comes to who we're going to give feedback to. And so that's one of the things that we look at. And then we can give nudges to the team to say, hey, this person's been getting less feedback. Let's make sure we rectify that. So nudges, I love the sound of nudges. I'm a fan of um, uh, studying behavioral economics and the idea of nudging. So how do you, how, what does a nudge mean in the multitudes world? Yeah, we've thought a lot about this. And, and this, I'll say, is probably one of the biggest things that we've bitten off as a company. We're not a functional product. We're a product that wants to get you and your team to a better place. And so it means that from the beginning, yes, we had to have some graphs and dashboards, but we've always been thinking about how does that translate into behavior change? And this is where some of the coaching and consulting work I've done in the background really helps. Um, so a key insight, though, on the nudge side is rather than trying to give people something new that they need to think about or do, how can we take what they're already doing? So the habits they already have, the workflows they already have, and make that better. And so an example specifically on that note of who's getting less feedback is one, in tech teams, and really it should be in every team, but especially in technology teams, it's well understood that managers should do regular one-on-ones with their team members. And so that's something we hook into. When we see that someone's getting less feedback, we'll proactively send a message through Slack. So again, that's mode of communication that we're often using in tech. Send a message through Slack. We'll nudge that manager to say, hey, such and such is getting less feedback. You might want to talk about it with them in their next retro to, or in your next one-on-one to find out more about what's going on there. And um, you do quite a bit of work with people who are doing software development. And uh, I'm just curious about what a, a dashboard for a software development operation might look like if I'm some sort of manager or project team manager. I'm just curious about my dashboard. I'm guessing it's not kilometers per hour and uh, how empty is my tank or how many kilometers of charge have I got left. It's something else. Can you give us an idea of what's on that dashboard? Absolutely. So there's two major buckets of things that we look at. One is on the the people side. So 
within that, we're looking at those indicators of how are the feedback trends going? So are, are we seeing enough feedback going to people across the team? Is each piece of work getting enough feedback? So we've got some collaboration indicators. We have some other indicators around behavioral um, indicators of how well-being might be going. So obviously this is part of the picture, not the full picture, but one thing we'll look at is how often are people working in the middle of the night or on a weekend, or let's say they're part-time, how often are they working on one of their supposed off days for their part-time work? Um, so that's on that people side. And then the, the other bucket that we look at is on the team performance side. And I do say team performance because we're focused on how the team's operating together. We know that peers are a team sport. We know that a team is not just the sum of those individuals. And so we're not pulling in individual performance metrics, but we are pulling in some research-backed metrics that look at things like, as a team, how quickly are we moving? How much work did we, are we getting done? And what's the quality of the work that, that we've done at the end of the day? When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Now, you did a, a great interview with Simon Pound uh, a few years ago, early on in the days of the Spinoffs Podcast Network, and the last three or four years have been a hotbed of activity for all sorts of people in SaaS, software as a service, changing ways that people are being managed and are working from home post-COVID. Could you tell us what the process, the journey, as they say, for multitudes has been over the last two or three years? Because you're a startup yourself. 
Yeah. I, this story is a fun one for us because we are a startup that was born during the pandemic. So we're a company where work from home was the reality. There was no choice. There was no decision to be made. It was the only way that we were going to be able to operate as a company. And it's interesting because it means there's, there's some rituals and practices we have that are very much woven into our ethos. One fun one, we realized that when you work from home, you have to schedule the team bonding time. You have to schedule the fun time. So we have regular Friday afternoon virtual games that we'll play. What's your favorite? Um, we like the drawing games, I think, because they're less competitive. There's a competitive element. Um, there's one called Scriblio. Uh, so, and the other one I'm blanking out on at the moment, but there's variations where it's someone draws something and you try to figure out what they're drawing. And what are, what are, what are the other um, practices which... Because you're right at the, you know, right in the middle of this. What are the things that work to make working from home work? Uh, because it's all brand new territory for everyone. Yeah, there's a few things that are pretty typical tech agile practices that translate really well to working from home. So some of those, again, not things that we invented, but things that have worked really well for us are things like a morning stand up. And that one, especially in a work from home environment for us, we hop on a call. It's a really quick, what are you focusing on? Are you blocked on anything? And it means you get a little bit of social interaction. And then also maybe you didn't know that someone was blocked and they were waiting for you on something. And so it's a chance to surface that. So we do that. And then our addition to it was actually to do a stand down. So we had some team members who, uh, if they're deep in code all day, they're maybe not getting very much human interaction. Maybe they miss it. And then stand down for us as well was one of the ways to combat that overwork we see where if you're working from home, maybe you just keep going and going, you're not keeping track of the time. And so that it's it's a reminder of, hey, we've gotten to the end of the day. This is a good stopping point. We'll wrap up and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> so the other thing to look for, I suppose, is, is red flags, things that tell you someone is... Um, in danger of burning out or uh, is obviously having some issues. And sometimes you you can use the software to understand this and uh, if not intervene early, then understand early. So what are you seeing in terms of uh, the, the red flags that you can spot to, you know, avoid that horrible moment when after two or three weeks of not hearing much from someone, in comes the email that's the resignation or whatever. Yeah, that's where those day-to-day -day behavioral indicators we find to be really helpful. So things like, I mentioned, who's working really long hours. Sometimes there are people who are just quietly heads down. We actually had an example recently with one of our customers where there was a manager of a team and she'd ask people on the team, how do you feel about your work-life balance? And everyone had said they were fine. And then she happened to see in the multitudes data that one person had had a major spike in how often they were doing work at night and on weekends. And so she checked in and had a really fruitful conversation with that person. But sometimes there's, I don't know if it's stoicism or people feel like it's just what they should be doing. Sometimes people just heads down and don't say anything. So that, of course, is one. The second is looking at those trends of who's not getting feedback, who maybe hasn't been giving as much feedback, and we really want to hear their voice and perspective on how we're doing the work. And then a third thing that we look at that, that pops up quite significantly is where is their work that's gotten blocked and maybe it's just been forgotten and or Slack is both wonderful as a communication tool, but also it's a really easy place for things to get lost. And so maybe someone had asked someone else to give some feedback on it and they missed it and they just need that bit of a reminder that it's sitting there waiting. So we're now, you know, a good three or four years into this and there must be a few people listening here who 
uh, maybe, you know, office planners and uh, uh, commercial property strategists who are thinking, I wonder if this is, this is it. I wonder if, you know, we're never going to go back to 100% of people in the office apart from um, when they're sick. And now it's more like 40 or 50% of people in the office. And if they are going to come in, it's only going to be two or three days a week. What's your feeling? Because you're, you're right in the middle of it. And in a way, it's 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 your job to know um, how permanent, how sticky this this thing is. What What's your feeling now after three years for those knowledge workers who can work from their laptops, which now have great cameras and good sound and all of that. Are we going to go back to normal? Is there a, a new normal? Is it 20, 30% of time in the office and the rest at home? Or is it 50, 50? What's your feeling? Yeah, I, for especially for tech companies, I can confidently say this is the new normal. The new normal is some hybrid version and the reasons for that, so one, we work with companies around the world. So here, Australia, the US, the UK, and so many of them during COVID hired people that live in cities apart, miles or kilometers apart from each other. And they've they've built working relationships, they've built great teams around that. And so there's no way they're gonna say, oh, you've been living there, well, you now, now that we're out of COVID, you need to move to the city with the rest of us. Um, so that's one piece where I feel confident about it. But the second is is we've seen the benefits. So for all the risks on the burnout side, there is a flexibility that it gives people. We hear that all the time. One of the common things that comes up for us actually is flexible work because there's a difference, of course, from people who are working long hours because they don't want to versus the person who worked a bit, wrapped up at three, picked up their kids, brought them home from school, did dinner, the wind down routine, and then they jump back online in the evening to do a bit more work. The second person, that's what works best for their their life and, and it means they get more time with their kids. And so that's a win. And so that's something we're often getting feedback about and building into the product is how can we actually celebrate the flexibility, which we know remote work gives people because they're not commuting. If a kid is sick, it's a little bit easier for them to, to be able to check in on them. Um, the number of user research calls, just on that note, that I've had where talking to someone and then a kid pops in and they jump out and help them out. It's great. And, and we can, I can really see the benefits it gives on people's lives. What would you say are the sort of one or two key things that any manager, maybe even an executive or a board member should think about when they're making some of these changes more permanent? Obviously during COVID, we we're all doing things in a hurry. We didn't have a chance to sit down and consider it and, you know, make permanent changes in our behavior. We just made it up as we went along. Now the dust is settled. What would you say to someone who's about to say, right, our new policy is you can work from home two or three days a week or whatever. What what would be the one or two things you would say to someone who maybe isn't, you know, a working from home expert, you know, they're a director or an executive who spent their entire working lives, you know, in the normal way pre-COVID. What would you say to them? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that, and, and again, this is based on what we've seen and the companies we work with. So one thing is that I, it, we have seen it's really lovely to have those in-person bonding moments. We're still human. We need those. And so it's thinking about what are the key moments to have those happen for teams where maybe they have people in the same city or city plus suburbs, then it can make sense to have, here's our day that we work from the office. We, from multitudes, we're quite spread out around the world, but we do have a cluster of us here in Auckland. And so we have two days a week where we come in 
And frankly, those are not our most productive days, but they are great team bonding days and that serves its own purpose. So that's one piece. What are those in-person moments? And then for the people where your teams are quite distributed, for us, what that looks like is regular weeks where we'll get everyone together. So we'll fly everyone into the same place. We'll have a combination of maybe some working time, a little bit of strategic planning time, and then a little bit of fun time together. So that's one. How do we do that, that team bonding? Because we're still social creatures. The second thing where work from home and hybrid work, I think, is a really great pressure is it forces us to move away from using that old butts and seats hours in the office to measure what has someone contributed to getting much more nuanced and thoughtful about what does a good contribution look like on our team. And so for us, the what that's looked like is having OKRs and... and Sorry, you have to... What's, what's an OKR? Oh, sorry. Um, so objectives and key results, it's a Google framework for thinking about what are the outcomes we want to reach and then what are the levers, so that's the, the objectives, and then what are the levers we want to pull to get there? So that's the key results. And that, it's, it's a great process for us as a team. It doesn't have to be that framework. It can be any, but really it means we're focused on where do we need to get to? What are we going to do to get there? And then what is the piece that each of us is responsible for, for getting us there? And frankly, one of the nice things about it is, let's say someone is really efficient at getting to the outcomes they need to. That's great. We've all agreed that this is what good looks like. Um, and, and, and then we're all on the same page. Um, and, and the last thing I will say on that, though, is there is definitely a piece as a leader of just trusting <laughs> that we've hired the right people, that we've set up the right environment. And as long as I'm doing a good job of saying, here's where we're headed, are we aligned on that? Then I can just let go and trust that my people will get us there. And just finally, um, when you think about uh, how to measure performance, uh, and we all like to have our own, and every business and every industry and, and craft has its own KPI, if you like, uh, where for us, it's, you know, how many downloads of a month or, uh, you know, how long do people listen to the whole thing? <laughs> Those sorts of KPIs. And sometimes it is useful to have that piece of hard data. From a employer, you know, business point of view, what are the metrics that they would look at to judge whether the sorts of uh, software that you provide for them, that it's working for them? I mean, is it things like reducing your employee churn rates or is it, you know, re reducing the sort of um, need for interventions or disputes or what, what are the, the metrics you're judged by? Yeah. So there's two key buckets. And interestingly, they overlap with the two buckets of metrics that we look at. So one is around, are we, is Multitudes helping us retain our people and create an environment where they want to stick around? And, and, and that's where us thinking about how are we helping you support the well-being of your teams? How are we helping you support collaboration? It's really lending itself to, are we helping you create an environment that, that people want to work in and where they enjoy working with each other? So that's on that side. And then the second one, which really links to the bigger business outcomes as well, is on the performance side, it's, it's about how well are we creating value for our customers? And the research-backed metrics that we use comes from a piece of research that actually started with the question of, if we care about the financial performance of the company and the psychological safety of the team me members, what are the performance indicators that correlate best with that? And so 
that's why the things we look at, it's when the speed measure, for example, it's how long does it take us to get things into the hands of our customers? Or the quality measures are very focused on when were the times when a failure was so bad that our app was down and people couldn't even use our software tooling. So even from those examples, you can see it's very focused on how is this going to impact what a customer is able to do and how much value they're getting. Do, do you think that we're better off now post-COVID because of all this? I do. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the, I'll say it again. Yes, we've got the risks of burnout, but the flexibility of people being able to work from different places. We have one team member um, who was able to work remotely from all around New Zealand for a year. And so it meant that she got to spend time with different family members and support people. Um, I love that we're able to provide that kind of opportunity for people. And, and frankly, she does great work. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it was really a non-issue for how our team was able to operate together. So I love that we're able to, to do that for people. Lauren Peet, the founder and CEO of Multitudes.co. Lauren, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks so much. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.